Welcome to Podcetera. Each episode is a journey of discovery. As we delve into topics that pique our curiosity, we invite fascinating individuals from experts in their field to ordinary people who have extraordinary stories to share. This is Podcetera. From political consultant to film producer and director, Mike Blizzard has turned his talent for grassroots campaigning into a vibrant film career. His latest project, Richard Linkletter's Hitman, features an undercover cop posing as a gun for hire. Mike was a producer on Apollo 10 and a Half, a space-age childhood, and No-No, a documentary, about the life and times of Major League Baseball pitcher Doc Ellis. In 2018, he produced and directed the documentary Also Starring Austin, which features scenes from locally shot films as a lens to explore Austin, its evolving environment, enduring culture, and its importance in American film history. Mike joins us to talk about his past, current, and future films, and what it's like to produce in the streaming era. Welcome to the first episode of Podcetera, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a little bit about your path from a political consultant to like filmmaker, producer? That's kind of like a little bit of a jump there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it is and it isn't to some degree. There's a lot of similarities between political campaigns and film production. A big part of it is they're both very startup enterprises. You know, they gear up and they're over within a year, you know, sometimes maybe a little longer, maybe a little less. And so it's about building the team, raising revenue, knowing how to spend it. And so there's there's a lot of similarities. I was just talking to an old friend about this recently, but I was uh, doing a lot of candidate consulting in Austin after being an environmental canvasser. And I kind of morphed into candidate consulting for a number of years, city council, state representative, mayoral campaigns, things like that. And then started getting involved in more PR type issues, including some of the bigger development battles that happened in Austin in the 90s and 2000s. The Longhorn reactivation of the Longhorn pipeline, a big super Walmart fight, concrete plants, all sorts of stuff like that. I had you know a good amount of success doing that, and but I just kind of after a while I felt like I was repeating myself. I didn't get a lot of satisfaction from it anymore. And so I decided I'd always been interested in filmmaking. I, when I went to the University of Texas, I took all of the intro film RTF classes and had these ideas that I didn't really know how to bring to fruition. And so when I turned 40, I just thought, if I don't do this, then I'm never going to do it. And then I'll regret it. It'll be too late. And so I started moving that way. I started reading books about screenwriting. I had this idea I wanted to be a screenwriter. And it turned out that my, just my skill set was better suited to being a producer than it was necessarily to being a writer, which are two very different lifestyles. I've become such a multitasker, such a juggler that like my mind is just sort of wired that way now. And so it's hard for me, you know, like to concentrate on one thing for months, um, you know, just nailing that story down. I think I... I'm, I'm a better editor than I am a writer, I think. 
Um, and so I can help people make their scripts better, better than I can, you know, write my own. I think editing and writing, they go together hand in hand. An editor is a writer. It's true. Yeah. I think. Yeah. You are about to go out on a big tour. Tell us about Hitman. So we have this movie Hitman that's going to have its world premiere at the uh, Venice Film Festival in Italy, um, rather than California. And so that's on September 5th. So we'll be leaving here this weekend to have some time there to hang out a little bit beforehand. And then we go directly to Toronto for our North American premiere. So it's really great because those are two just very well-respected, renowned you know, film festivals, the Venice Film Festival is the longest running film festival in the world, almost a hundred years now. And so that's exciting and just really happy with the film. It's based, it was inspired by a story in Texas Monthly Magazine by Skip Hollinsworth. It's directed by Richard Linklater. It stars Glenn Powell and Audrea Arjona. Glenn Powell, I got to know, he had a small role and a small or prominent role in a movie I that came out last year, Apollo 10 and a half, that I was the producer on and Linklater was the director. And Glenn just did it as a lark. It was it was actually like one day of work. Um and he's from Austin, so he was able to visit his family and all that good stuff. It's basically the true story is about a guy who gets recruited. He works for the police um doing backup for their sting operations and he gets recruited to be the guy who's pretending to be a hitman. He's a fake hitman. These people have gone to someone expressing that they wanted to kill their business partner or spouse or someone else. And they've ended up sitting there with a comp. And that 99% of the time, if you're sitting across the table at someone you think is a hitman, they're a cop. <laughs> Part of the premise of the movie is there's not just retail hitmen running around all the I sure hope there aren't like this big group of hitmen running around. Oh, I don't know these days. <laughs> uh, there could be in Russia, though, Mike. <laughs> yes, I'm sure there is. Just a follow up. I wasn't sure you said whether this was based on a true story or not. It is based on a true story, but it takes a fictional twist. Yeah. So this real guy, Gary Johnson, was a, she worked for the Houston prosecutor's office. And he became very good at this. He he had something about him psychologically that he could make the people say the right words. And he would study them beforehand so that he would show up as the hitman that he thought they would imagine. So that might be a biker looking guy. It might be a Russian gangster. It might be whatever. And so we have a lot of fun with that. Because this is an acting tour de force, because Glenn gets to play not only this character, but all of the characters that's created when he's acting as if he's a hitman. But then he meets this woman who is in an abusive relationship, and that's why she wants to hire him. And he feels sorry for her, and honestly, he's attracted to her. And so this is where it takes off in a fictional twist, and they they end up in a relationship, and his life gets. Um, but she's in a relationship with Ron, the hitman, not Gary Jock, who works for the cops. So his life, both professionally and personally, begins to unravel. So it's it's funny. Um, it's sexy. I definitely think it's the sexiest Richard Linklater movie ever made. And um, and it, I think the last 20 minutes maybe play somewhat like a thriller. But, you know, that'll be for other people to decide. But 
after having watched it like 87 times now, it still holds up. Glenn seems to be on a meteoric rise. I see him everywhere now. He is. And very deserving so. He's a hardworking guy. He co-wrote the script to this. He's a fellow producer with me on it. Um, and um, I saw, first saw him in the Linklater movie, um, Everybody Wants Some. And he played the kind of cool guy, sort of like the Matthew McConaughey character in Dazed and Confused a little bit. And I just knew immediately I saw him in that movie. I was not involved in that movie at all. And I thought, that guy's going to be a star. And not long after that, he was in Hidden Figures. He played John Glenn in Hidden Figures, a small but obviously very prominent role. And he's just been doing great ever since. Yep, I've seen that. It was really good. Mike, so how did you get connected with Linkletter and get connected through the film industry to begin producing the films that you're producing? I was producing a documentary about a controversial baseball player named Doc Ellis, and it's called No No, a documentary, D-O-C-K, because that was his name, D-O-C-K. While we were making the movie, the Austin Film Society was interested in bringing on a new board member that had experience in bond elections because they needed a, they wanted to have a bond to uh, improve Austin Studios. They have a studio lot on part of the former Austin airport. And so there was an old National Guard armory there. The National Guard had left and they wanted to expand the studios into that. And so one of the mayor's aides said, well, you should talk to Mike Blizzard. He's, he knows everything about bond elections and he's now making films. And so I was recruited to be on the Film Society board and thankfully in sort of a leadership role because immediately we had to get the sufficient money onto the ballot and then get it approved. So I was in regular close contact with Rick Linklater because he was one of our spokespeople, you know? And so suddenly I'm sort of like helping direct this thing and then got to know a lot of these people. A lot of the work that we have done together has been through the film society. Since that time, we've opened up our own two screen theater. We now have this um, community hub, um, and so, and I ended up becoming president of the board for a while. So, so we became close because of that, but also he's a big baseball guy. As you may notice, most of his movies feature baseball in some way and it's because he was a college baseball player himself. That was most of his youth and until he got injured. And so I thought he would like this idea. And we had just interviewed a former Houston Astro, Bob Watson. I showed up in a meeting and I was sitting near him and I said, hey, it was down in Houston. And we were interviewing Bob Watson. He said, oh, that was my Astro buddy when I was a kid. It was some fan program that had connected the kids to the players. And I said, oh, well, would you like to watch the footage? <laughs> so said, yes, I would like to watch the footage. And so that just started him becoming kind of an advisor and supporter of that project. And coincidentally, we were lucky enough to go to Sundance with that project. And it was the same time as Boyhood. And so we were on the festival circuit at, at there, South by Southwest, et cetera, at the same time. So we were like a big team, you know, from Austin on those two projects. And the joke was that Rick went around talking about no-no more than he talked about <laughs> no, that's Boyhood. That's great. <laughs> well, did you get kind of tired of talking about your own? So, 
So that that started the relationship. And around that time, he told me he had this idea for a movie that was currently then called The Space Age. Kind of pitched me on it almost. And I, I said, that's great. You know, let's have lunch and talk about it or whatever. And I just started putting together the research and recruiting interns and all that stuff. And it, it was a very long process. That movie probably took from, from that date till it was released nearly 10 years. That's Apollo 10 and a half, right? Now called Apollo 10 and a half. Yeah. A space age childhood. So we started working together, you know, about the same time that those movies were premiering. That would have been like 2014. I don't know if you remember, Mike, when we met. I do. You were at South by, I think we were sitting at a bar and we started yep. talking and you uh, were telling me about no, no. And I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. I was watching it and obviously introduced it to Joelle for this interview. And I just looked at the amount of interviews, the archival footage that I know that you had to piece together. Do you want to talk about the process for that film? I met the director, Jeffrey Radice. A friend of mine was moving to England and it turned out we were mutual friends, but I had not, he remembers meeting me before that, but I don't remember meeting him before that. And I he wanted to make this movie and he collected all this stuff. He had a wall full of Doc Ellis um, material. And the, the little after party was at his studio. He played me some Doc Ellis audio. And Doc just has this voice that just reaches out and grabs you. And that was later the audio that these uh, animation artists used to create the Doc Ellis of the LSD no-no animated short. So it's booming over the studio. And after I left, I guess a couple of his friends said, well, you should get Blizzard to help you. He's good at like making stuff happen. And so like two weeks later, typical Austin story, I'm at a roller derby documentary. I'd helped the roller derby uh, league with something. And so I was there and I'm walking down the steps of the Alamo Draft House and Jeffrey pops up, you know, a few seats in and says, hey, Blizzard. Do you want to co-produce the Doc Ellis documentary with me? And I said, hell yeah, let's get a beer afterwards. <laughs> and that's how it started. Um, but he had already done on that one a tremendous amount of research and had put together a list of names of people that he thought we would like to interview. But then once we started and started reaching out to people, you know, a, a documentary is really organic. Like you may have a plan and you may think you know what the story is, but each person that you talk to both on camera and off camera influences it in some way and twists it in a new direction in some way. And especially telling you who you really need to talk to. And one of our first interviews, for instance, told us, well, have you talked to Tom Rich yet? And he had been Doc's agent. We didn't find that particularly interesting, I guess, at first. But it turns out he knew Doc extremely well. Plus, he was ex very connected with all of the other players, especially black players in baseball. He was the first agent to ever represent black and Latino players in baseball. So if you called someone and said, hey, Tom Rich gave me your number, they'd say, well, what can I do for you? <laughs> Rather than being suspicious about what you were trying to do or that this would all be about acid or something um, because Doc Ellis is most famous for throwing his one no hitter while he was high on LSD. So you can imagine a lot of players, you know, maybe a little bit uh, wary 
of, of talking on the record about stuff like that. And they don't know what direction is going and they love doc. So they didn't, you know, so having Tom on the board really changed things. And we were able, each person would recommend others that we should be talking to. Not, it wasn't always the name players that we thought it would be players that they would have been named players, but they got injured or something, but they were particularly close to Doc. You know, we made maybe four or five trips around the country to interview people. We would try to group them like California. We probably got, I don't know, 15 interviews or something. And Pittsburgh, we probably got 10 or 12. We did a couple other trips. We went and interviewed Ron Howard, which was a lot of fun, uh, who had gotten to know Doc when Doc had a tiny role in his movie Gung Ho with Michael Keaton. And so it was definitely a real journey. And the interesting part of the story about Doc is that while he's mostly known for this crazy drug-fueled game, he became addicted to drugs, not to LSD, but to speed and alcohol while he was playing. He would take up to 15 pills per game. When he left baseball, he went into treatment, and then he became a drug counselor himself and a drug counselor in the California correctional system. So we were able to go out there and interview these former prisoners who didn't know Doc as a star baseball player. They knew him as the guy who got them straight and saved their lives. So it has this really nice you know, arc to it that, that helps make it, I think, a much better documentary than it would be. If it was just about the LSD, that wouldn't be that interesting, honestly. It's really about the person and the times that he went through. Did you ever meet Doc? Jeffrey had been wanting to make the movie while Doc was still alive. And Chris Cortez, my fellow producer, talked to Doc on the phone. But it turned out even at that time that Doc was very sick. Like a lot of people, he wasn't telling people that. So many, many people, even people pretty close to him, did not know how bad it was. He died not soon after that phone call. And so when I got involved, he had been deceased maybe a year or two, something like that, I think. Is it still up for debate on whether he did or did not pitch that no-hitter on LSD? What's your what's your take? It's not really a debate, in my opinion. He, we show in the movie that even in his the manuscript of the book that Donald Hall, who went on to later become U.S. Poet Laureate, the book that Donald Hall wrote in the 70s, had it in there in the early versions of the manuscript which we were able to find and tom rich his agent had it taken out because doc had just gotten to play for the new york yankees <laughs> and he knew that if something came out about him throwing you know uh, a no hitter on lsd he was not going to be a yankee very much longer and he was not going to be a major league baseball player very much longer he was already a very controversial player because he was very outspoken about racial issues and other issues. He did not have any filter about him. So something like that would have probably been career ending for him. You know, people have acted like he made it up some long time later. Well, this was just a few years later when this book was written and he was already telling them privately that this had happened. The only person who has been debating it is a an old reporter, a beat reporter from the era, who says, I didn't notice anything wrong with him that day. I didn't notice anything different about him. It's like, well, do you know what a person looks like when they're on LCD <laughs> or not? Yeah. Drunk. You know, the average person is not going to know. All this stuff is happening internally. It's not easy to tell, especially if you yourself haven't done that drug before. 
that's the only person I know of out there that's claiming that this is all made up. But there's clear evidence that he told this story again and again over over the many years after it happened. And he was the type of guy who would do such a thing. He didn't take it on purpose to be clear to everyone who hasn't seen the movie. It was an accident. I mean, he took it on purpose. He didn't take it before the game on purpose. He lost track of time. Yes, he did. He lost the whole day, didn't he? Lost the whole he? day. So, I, I saw the film, you know. And it happens, you know. It, and he had a pitch, and he, he was told to go back. You have to pitch. And he's like, I thought that was yesterday. Uh, what happened yesterday? yesterday. Yeah. But, so, you know, I, I don't know why anyone would make something up like that. There's no reason to, you know. Taking LSD, pitching a no-hitter, you know, it was sort of made fun of. A lot of comedians, you know, bring it up in their act, stuff like that. But it was, I was surprised to see it take such a serious, more serious turn, I guess you could say, you know, when when you saw the implications of his drug use in his personal life. Can you comment a little bit on, on that? We had already, you know, we interviewed two of his ex-wives and both of them recounted, you know, violent episodes with him where they were attacked by him. The second one, which sort of is the turning point that you're talking about, was especially egregious and, and sounded awful. And we had no idea she was going to tell that story. We didn't go into the interview with her knowing that that story existed. So... We're sitting there interviewing her, fairly shocked and taken aback as well. It's it made sense because that's he got sober right after that happened. That was like that was the moment where he knew he had hit rock bottom and he had to change. And so we never we never knew what that turning point was before. You know, it, it definitely helped with the storytelling, but it also she came to one of the screenings when we played the Dallas Film Festival. She came to a screening. We all hung out. Everything. She stood in the lobby and talked to people afterwards. I think that many of the people there were fairly shocked that she would be out in support of the movie. But honestly, I felt like she was still in love with them, that she was more sad that that had happened and felt like they had something really good and that he had destroyed it. It, it felt like she sort of kind of regretted his actions more than was angry about them, if that makes sense, because it, you know, it derailed both their lives. And then he went and got sober. So every time I watched the movie, I cry. And our editor said that like every time I edited that section at the end, I would cry. So not a lot of sports documentaries make you cry. I just want to ask a follow-up because as a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker myself, it's, it's an unfortunate circumstance that she went through with Doc, but also a gem for you as a filmmaker and, and your team as, as filmmakers for her to tell that story. When you're interviewing, you know, your subjects, you have to create like an environment of trust there. So she must have felt comfortable enough with you and your team to tell that story so openly. I agree. And, and she speaks very, very softly. We were so worried, were we picking up the audio okay? You know, because she was speaking so softly, we were having to lean in to hear. And when it took that turn, it was like, oh my gosh, I hope that this recording 
is coming through because um, it was so personal. She also brought a box of Super 8 reels. That, that Super 8 image of him going onto the field and all that stuff, that was all what she brought us. I mean, as you know, the cost of putting archival in a documentary is super high, especially any sort of game footage and all that kind of stuff, unless you can claim fair use. So it was huge. Not only did she tell this personal story that becomes a turning point of the movie, had takes you into the last act, but then she also brought, we probably have at least 10 minutes of footage of those Super 8 videos that were taken at games, at home, partying, all kinds of stuff. Him playing with his children, right? He's playing out in like the field. I mean, that stuff is priceless. And so we didn't even know what we got until we got home, you know, and started like scanning it. So amazing, you know, the film could hold up a pretty long time sitting in a box in someone's closet. Something like that validates that it was meant to be. I think what's really telling for me is the reason it was so powerful was the setup. She was talking about how great he was, how much she loved him, and then bam. Yeah, it was kind of shocking. Yeah, and how unhappy he was, you know, being cut from the team. She was with him in New York, and he gets traded to Texas. They don't want to be there. And, you know, then his career slowly falls apart, and this incident happens right as he finds out he's cut from the team. That whole journey of that documentary led to some just amazing friendships <laughs> that are still active you know and you just you meet so many people like you said you're talking about their personal life and they're telling you their secrets and everything so you you it creates like an intimacy with people that i i never would have anticipated joelle and i are both phillies fans so we could talk baseball and in fact, I was telling her, like, I wonder if we can get some of the 80s Phillies, like Croc and uh-huh. Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt right. was like, my, Mike Schmidt was like my jam when I was a kid. I oh, yeah. loved right. third base. <laughs> He's talked pretty openly himself about the use of amphetamines in baseball and how over time people started to cheat. You know, now they'll try to get them a prescription. You know, suddenly they all have ADHD. So they got to get them some Adderall correct that ADHD. So what's your next sports documentary? Roberto Clemente. It's a little different. I haven't been along on their whole journey. They had filmed most of the stuff, probably about more than half of the interviews by the time they even contacted me, but they were fans of No-No. And then I was coming up to um, Pittsburgh for Tom Rich's memorial service. Unfortunately, he died a couple of years ago and met with them and we really got along and they were looking for people who were influenced by Clemente. So I told him this Rick Linklater story about how as a kid, he was a, a baseball fan. He would tear photos out of magazines and send them to the players and ask them to autograph them. And one of the few players that ever did it was Roberto. And he now that calls out his most prized possessions. So they were like, we want to come to Austin and interview him. And they did. And it was like, he was kind of shy, like, what? Why would I be a Roberto Clemente documentary? I was like, well, because they want to show like he had such this connection to kids, not only in Pittsburgh, but all over the country and sort of his fandom. And and it works really well in the movie. They have some other people like that in there. It's nearly complete, and we're hoping that it will get picked up by a distributor and hopefully come out sometime next year. 
I didn't see that on your IMDb. I know that you have what I was surprised to see was a Sondheim uh, musical comedy. Uh huh. Yeah. Up and coming. You want to briefly tell us what that's about? Merrily we roll along. It's a Stephen Sondheim musical that up until now had never succeeded on the stage. There's actually a documentary about its failure. I can't remember the name of it, but it's really, really good. And the reason, part of the reason that people think it failed is the characters have to age backwards over 20 years over the course of the play. And Rick had done Boyhood, of course, over 12 years. And so he has some theater friends in New York and a big theater person himself. And he was telling them, hey, if you really wanted to do that, you'd do it as a movie and you'd allow these characters to age in real time. You know, you'd start with the last scene because they age backwards and then just shoot it over, you know, 20 years. And so one of the people he's meeting with, my understanding is, texts someone. And then a few minutes later, a text comes in and he says, oh, Sondheim loves this idea. <laughs> That's how the film got kicked off. And it's kind of like, be careful what you wish for. But a lot of people got together. This was right before I got involved. They shot the first segment, but we found this guy, Paul Meskel. I had never heard of him, but his audition was amazing. He's Irish, but could sing like an American. He was in this show called Normal People, which is based on an Irish novel. And it was, you know, it was a, there's so many TV shows out there today. Like how, who could watch all these? But since then, he's been nominated for a Best Actor Oscar. This was just in 2021. In 2022, he not only was nominated for Best Actor you know, for After Some, but then he won the Olivier Award in uh, Britain for his portrayal in um, Streetcar Named Desire. So he's suddenly a huge deal. He's going to be in Gladiator or whatever. And I just feel like, well, we, we saw it <laughs> you know, before, before he kind of hit it big. I only want to talk about the people who've been announced, but Beanie Feldstein and Ben Platt are also in the show. And so we have filmed one segment and we're going to be as accurate as possible that there's nine setups over 20 years. So it's not every year. Sometimes it's two years in a row. Sometimes there's like a gap of five years. And so we are attempting to do this as close as possible to that schedule as we can make happen. That's both exciting and frightening. Yeah, it's almost so frightening that it's just got to run with it because Boyhood had an advantage that if something had happened to one of the actors, that could be put into the movie. If Eller, the young actor, had developed more into a football player rather than an artist, that could have been part of the movie. You know, it was open-ended. It was following a, a kid's life. And it wasn't like it was just improv or something. But if those characters started to change in real life, it could be easy to adapt the movie to that. This, we don't have that ability. There's a, many, many things we've discussed that could derail it in any moment, but every single person who's involved is committed to making it happen as best they can. I had no idea that's what it was going to be. That's, I mean, I'll be watching. <laughs> Who knows what they will be projecting such things on that year. But. How are the strikes affecting your projects right now? Well, unfortunately, it's having two effects. One on Hitman, in that actors on strike are not allowed to promote 
their projects, even if those projects are finished. Really? I didn't know that. And so you have to get a waiver to do that, just like you can get a waiver to film. But due to a variety of things about this project, just a waiver does not work. Even the actors have decided it's better for us to stay home than, than that. So it just gets really complicated. You know, this project hasn't even sold yet. So we, we have sold the foreign rights. It's sort of an old school thing where they sell the foreign rights first and then use them to help finance the movie, et cetera. But then you hold the U.S. rights. So we, you know, our lead actors who would be incredible on the red carpet won't be able to participate. Very likely won't be able to participate. If I had to bet now, I would bet that they won't. We were hoping to do another project in the fall. And I, I don't think anyone has said, that's absolutely not happening now. But yeah, if I had to bet, it's, it's not going to happen. There's no end in sight to this strike. So even if it was resolved, you know, a month from now, that would be too late. Justine Bateman is posting a lot about AI and how bad it is for the film industry, how bad it is for actors and actresses. Have you experienced or worked on any project with AI? What are your thoughts about it? Well, there's already a lot of AI technology in post-production, for instance, that's used to kind of speed up post-production. And I don't understand exactly how that works, but it's just sort of, it's, it allows you to kind of predict things, but the AI that we're talking about here would be content. And so my theory is there's a lawsuit right now, I guess, I guess it's chat GT, I, I forget, but. Chat GPT. Yes. Thank you. And I think the legal aspect of it is extremely important because if this machine is using other copyrighted material to create content, then in my opinion, that content can't be copyrighted because you have been stealing the use of other people's content to create it. And so if you wrote an AI book, I think that that book would not, you would not be able to get a copyright on that book, which makes that book worthless. A script is not copyrightable in and of itself, right? It's, it's part of the structure of the film. But again, I think that a film that's written by AI, I would think that that film, I would like to see a real concerted legal strategy to see if it could be stopped basically at the source to say, if you're doing it that way and you don't have some fair use claim or whatever to that, then you can't get a copyright. So that is not a path forward. And then there's the, the actor's I really think that the AMPTP um, thought that they could throw the extras, the background actors under the bus and the SAG would not care about that. And so they said it would only be the, at least according to SAG, they said that they would film these background actors and then be able to use their likeness as many times as they wanted. And obviously what a horrible thing. I mean, you get paid, what, 75 bucks? Now it's 150 bucks in some places, you know, and then your image is used again and again and again in movies for in perpetuity. No. I think the other legal aspect of it is if you read, like, people's long-form agreements, which unfortunately I have to do for actors and other, you know, key personnel, they have all sorts of protections written in there that their lawyers have written in to these agreements. I think that the basic SAG contracts, the basic WGA contracts have to include 
very similar language about the use of likeness, all this different kind of stuff. And so there's definitely a way forward. If they truly don't want to do this, then say you don't want to do it and allow an agreement to be in place that prevents it. You know, obviously it's always a challenge to get a whole ahead of technology. So every time the technology changes, the rules kind of change, the possibilities change, and then the contracts have to be updated because they didn't even imagine such a thing. To me, it feels like that's sort of, that's a solvable issue just by the legal language that could be created that would prevent it. You know, movie making in the streaming era and sort of the battle of the streaming platforms is what sort of seeing now play out in the strike. So what are your thoughts on that as well? I just did a streaming movie, Apollo 10 and a half, and I don't get any residuals from that. I got paid a salary. Everyone got paid a salary. You're kidding. No residuals. No, no. And part of the reason is, I mean, the, the streaming, I'm not trying to defend the streamers. I'm just talking about the facts are that streaming is not based on views. Streaming is not based on views. It's based on subscriptions. It's not the amount of times that someone views your movie is not automatically calculable as value because the value is in the subscriptions. We did an announcement about Apollo 10 and a half more than a year that it came out. And some people said, why would we do this? You always want to do this right before the movie comes out. Because Netflix doesn't care about that. They, what they care about is subscribers. And so we had this anniversary of the moon landing coming up, the moon launch. Let's announce it. Jack Black, you know, it's the narrator, et cetera. And it just, it makes you want to see that movie, want to see the things that Netflix is. It positions Netflix in a way that is, we're the place to be. Where If you don't have a subscription, you need to get one. If you got one, you need to keep it. That's their game. What's happening is it's like it's a square peg over here and a round hole over here of how it used to work. It's like you bought a ticket for the movie. So that ticket has a certain value, certain amount of goes in their coffers, other parts of it go in other coffers based on the agreement. Streaming doesn't work that way. Or if you rent a movie online, same thing. So once we detached the per view idea from the revenue idea, it's really hard to make that work. And I, I wish we could find a different way. And it may be that streamers, you know, have to pay more. They have to pay higher salaries. They have to pay different rates. I can tell you on music licensing, they do. Because if you release a film in the theater, you can do what's called a step deal with music rights holders that says, if we make, you know, we'll give you this much money. And then when we hit $5 million at the box office, we'll give you another check. And when we hit 10 million, we'll do another check. And we hit 20, we'll give you another check. When it's streaming, there are no steps. It's all in. And so you know what? Those music rights holders want all the money. They want the full price for that song as if it's a box office hit. I think a reason that the strike may go on for a while is I'm not sure that even like the major studios are all aligned also because of these issues. You know, if theatrical is still a way that you make a lot of your money, Netflix barely puts their movies in theaters. They don't want, they hardly want them there because they want you in their ecosystem. Um, they want to be able to, you know, know what you're watching, advertise to you what you're, you know, what you more like and all that stuff. So 
So um, it's it's not an easy solution. I learned something today, Mike. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> It's nice to have a, an insider perspective because, you know, you look at it mm-hmm. from the vantage point of a consumer, right? I want variety and I want it right now. Uh, and I don't want to pay a lot, but there's a cost to bringing that to you. Well, here's another back too, is that the streamers have an advantage of waiting out the strike is they've got a whole bunch of content they're sitting on. I mean, my, my Netflix queue has things from five years ago I put in there. It would take me a decade to watch everything that's in my queue, right? So so they're sitting on a lot of content that people can just go to their Netflix or whatever, Prime or whatever, pull up, and there's a bunch of stuff you've already saved in there. So they don't have to have new content. Good point. Mm-hmm. So they might be just waiting this out. Yeah. I think you're right, actually. All right. We've come to the part of the program where we're going to do some speed round questions for fun. Are you ready, Mike? I guess. Should I take the first one? Ready? Okay. So um, first question, what was your most surprising film moment and film moment? And then also in the, in the no, no interviews. My best moment working on a film was when I got to have dinner with Vera Clemente. And at the end of the dinner, she got up and gave me a big bear hug. And this was at the night after the interview, the nicest woman. But like, you know, in Puerto Rico, she's like a saint or was. That was my that was my greatest moment, most personal moment. And what would be your favorite link litter film? I'm gonna have to say Dazed and Confused. Um, I think it's you know, it's lasted this long, 30 years, people are still watching it, kids are still getting turned on to it. I love watching it. I think it's hilarious, but also meaningful at the same time. And so that's definitely my favorite. I was a big slacker guy at the time. Um, I went and saw slacker in the movie theater, the Dolby theater where it played here in Austin and uh, bought it on VHS and we would hang out and watch it. Debate what the heck it was saying. But then when days to confuse came out, we're like, wow, this like has a plot. <laughs> sort of. I was, I lived slack. Yeah. That was like my lifestyle. You know, yeah. right. So. What would you say is the most iconic Austin film location? Since you produced also starring Austin, I thought maybe you would be the person to ask. Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, The Broken Spoke has had probably more films filmed in there than any other location in Austin except maybe the Paramount Theater and the Driscoll Hotel. And part of the reason is those were built 100 years ago, 130 years ago or whatever, so they can be used over time. But, you know, is that the most iconic? I don't know. Um, But yeah, I have to go with the Broken Spoke because it is one of of the interviews says, it is an effect simile of what it is. It is what it is, you know? It's a true Texas honky-tonk where all different kinds of people can come and hang out. It's sort of indicative of Austin itself. I'd say that's a good one. Joel doesn't know what you're talking about, but I'll tell her later. <laughs> I'll find out, yeah. This is such an informative interview. I love it. Why don't you ask one more, and then we'll do the whisper down the lane. All right. Have you ever walked out of a movie theater or movie, and what, what was that film? I may have walked out of a film and a festival because I realized, you know, like this wasn't what I was expecting at all, but I can't remember walking out of a film that I expressly bought a ticket for. 
but I'm pretty sure I did walk out of a bad festival <laughs> film just because I thought I got better things to do. I can go hang out at the bar and network with people or something rather than watching the rest hour of this. But I know it's so forgettable, I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> Good answer. Joelle, have you ever walked out of a movie? I've fallen asleep in movies and I have walked out of movies. I've fallen asleep in movies. I've I I turn like movies off that I've watched on, you know, Netflix. Like I'm like, I can't get through this or for whatever reason, the violence or just not interesting or sometimes films are longer than they need to be. I do a fair amount of judging of films and like the LGBTQ film festivals and things like that. So I find like sometimes films can be probably like an hour shorter than it, you know, than, than they are. Like, it's just. Yeah. The film that I was at that most people walked out of, and I did not, was um, American History X. Super violent. There's these violent prison scenes and stuff, and a bunch of people walked out of that movie. But I decided to stick it out. Okay, we're doing something called Whisper Down the Lane. What this is, is we're going to ask you a question that comes from our last guest. And then we're going to ask you to give us a question to ask our next guest. The question is, what birthday party stands out and why? I went to, I was mentioning Tom Rich earlier, and I went to his 79th birthday party. And um, he had it down in Florida at the Pirate Spring Training. And so we all went to a spring training game and they had this area uh, down the first baseline where people could just hang out watching the game and they got drinks and food and it was around Mardi Gras. So people had like Mardi Gras beads and stuff. And it was just, it was fantastic. And that one was the one that leaps out to me. And so your question for our next guest. You know, when was the first time that they felt like they wanted to pick up a camera and film something? Of course, that's a lot easier today when every device that we have on our body at all times can film something. But I like it. Thank you for, for giving us a question for our Down the Lane segment. Mike, thank you so much for joining us for Podcetera. I'm sure we'll be talking in the future when you are making more projects. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Good luck with your festival going. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you're listening to this message, you've made it through the entire episode. Thank you. Please leave a review and share Podcetera with your friends. Be sure to follow and like the series wherever you enjoy podcasts. That does it for this episode. See you next time.